John chapter 9, verses 1 through 12. This is the word of Almighty God. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who'd seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he's like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. Pray with me. Lord God, I pray that right now you will truly settle our hearts and minds and focus us on you, that we might find the sweetness of trusting in Jesus. It's in his holy name we pray. Amen. And you can be seated. Have you all ever been to an art museum? How many art museum goers have we got? A couple of you? Okay. Ben, are you that cultured? All right. Just checking out. You watched Bugs Bunny with a symphony recently, so I figured you've done it. If you haven't been to an art museum, have you ever been to a nice restaurant or theater or a place of business that has on display true pieces of art? And now... Understand me when I say this. When I say true pieces of art, I am not talking about some random throwing of pieces of paint on a canvas that is supposed to represent some deep and mystical reality. If it looks like a finger painting, I'm not calling it art, y'all. By art, what I'm talking about here is something that displays beauty and talent and truth in a way that captures the mind, the imagination, and the emotions of the one who views it. Have you seen art like that? Okay, good. Now, I could start asking you guys questions and check your backgrounds and the observation of art. But I'm not going to do that. I've got one question. And I think this question that all of us can answer, I believe easily, will help us to get where we're going today. Do you believe if a person sees true art... Let's say it's a remarkable painting. Are they likely to comment on the canvas itself? Let's say that you're standing in front of an original Picasso. Is he the Starry Night guy? Who is it? Van Gogh? I don't care. (laughs) Don't judge me. No, I don't know. Let's let's say you're looking at, at a Picasso or a Van Gogh. There you go. Do you think... If you're looking at that, you're likely to turn to your buddy next to you and say, man, that is an amazing piece of canvas behind that paint. No. 
The canvas might actually be a very nice canvas. But it would be crazy for you to think that the focus of the person seeing the art on the canvas should be the canvas. Now, that was a silly illustration, wasn't it? None of us would ever be so silly as to elevate the value of the canvas above the art, right? We often do. Maybe not in a museum, but what about in your own actual life? If you're left to yourself, you and I, we will tend to focus on background issues and we'll make the background issues out as if they are of primary importance. And when we do that, we often take the things that should be of first importance and we push them aside. In today's passage, we're going to watch Jesus do something amazing. And as we see it, we're going to want to glorify Jesus for this beautiful miracle. And as we watch the things that happen, we're going to see something of significance. We're going to see what it is our lives are supposed to be. If we get this right, we might never glorify the canvas over the art again. Now, as we look at this passage, we're going to have four points that you can write down so that you can live to display the glory of God. By the way, there are some really nifty little journaling notebooks in the back. If you didn't pick one of those babies up, but you want something to take notes in, they're back there and they can be a help for you to be able to write notes. Kids, if you're young, you're totally welcome to take, have one of those, have some paper, write something down that you hear that God teaches you with in the word today. Maybe you want to draw a picture of something that you hear that would help you remember what God taught in the word. Even if you don't understand everything I say, because I'm old and I talk fast, you can write something down that God has to show us from his word. And that would be totally, totally great. Kelly, if you want to color, it's okay. Now, before we pick up the passage for today, let's remember where we've been. Because it, the last time we were in the gospel according to John, you guys remember we're walking through John's gospel, right? Last time we were there was July. Well, since then, we did seven weeks in the book of Micah. We did three months walking through the entire Bible, doing the covenants to Christmas. And by the grace of God, we're back. John is the fourth gospel of the New Testament, and it was probably written late in the first century, probably between AD 85 or 90, somewhere in that time frame. The old apostle John there would have been quite aware of what had been written in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and those books are called the synoptic gospels. When you think optics, you think of things you see, right? The synoptic gospels are gospels that look alike. John's telling of the gospel looks different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's like he chose to help the church see more of Jesus than they could see in the other books. Some 93% of the content of John is not found in the other three gospels. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, John tells us why he wrote the book. He says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John could have written all sorts of things, 
about Jesus he didn't choose to write down. John could have given you all of the content of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He could have given you a great deal of other personal information that he had. But John chose to write the things that he wrote down for one purpose. He wants you. God inspiring John wants you and me and everybody who reads this book to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And he wants us to believe in such a way that we have life in Jesus' name. Well, so far we've looked at this book in two major sections. We've taken two major bites out of John. Chapters 1 to 4, we saw a series of events in the life of Jesus that demonstrate that he is something greater than the old covenant system, greater than the temple, greater than the the offerings and sacrifices. Then in the second section, beginning in chapter 5, Jesus is set against the backdrop of, of religious holy days. And there are lots of conflicts between Jesus and the religious leaders. The miracles and the teachings of Jesus sort of, sort of magnify how he fulfills those old festivals and old holy days. So as an example, chapter 5 is set against the Sabbath day. Chapter 6 has the Passover and the wilderness wanderings as the backdrop. Chapters 7 and 8 Jesus is preaching in Jerusalem during the Feast of Tabernacles. You might call it the Festival of Booths. And there, Jesus draws on themes from the Exodus to let the religious leaders know that Jesus is the God who led the nation out of Egypt. He invited people to come to him to receive living water, like the Hebrews were given water by God in the desert. Jesus calls himself the light of the world, just like God is the light, the pillar of fire in the night sky during the wilderness wanderings. And the more that the religious leaders argued with Jesus, the more clearly Jesus identified himself as more than a mere man. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is God in the flesh. He is truly God and truly man. And it made the Jewish religious leaders so mad, they tried to kill him. But they didn't make it. He just walked away because he's Jesus. What we've seen in John's writing is that the nation, for the most part, has been blind to the truth of who Jesus is. So as we open chapter 9, it's very fitting that the miracle Jesus performs, one of seven key miracles in John, it's the Savior giving sight to a man born blind. And he tells his disciples, there's a very limited amount of time left for him to do this sort of work. The spiritually blind nation needs to see their Savior before it's too late for them. And I can tell you as a spoiler, they won't. So what about you? What about me? Will we have our eyes open to the truth of Jesus today? First of your four points to write down. Understand that your purpose is the glory of God. First thing to learn today, understand that your purpose is the glory of God. Look at John chapter 9, verses 1 to 3, as we finally get into this story with Jesus. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, 
It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, speaking to you from first-hand experience, I can tell you that it can be difficult at times to live a normal life while being blind. If you don't know me, I can't see you. But thanks to God, I've been privileged to be born in a time, in a place where people who are blind have more opportunities than ever before. The progress of computers, even smartphones, it's made books, sometimes even the Bible in its original languages, accessible to a blind person with the right equipment. Y'all, that's cool. I actually was able to go to college, go to seminary, Because by the grace of God, I live in a land that has passed laws that required that schools make provision for students with disabilities. Right now, while I'm talking to you, you notice I have an earbud here besides the microphone, right? My little earbud cord. You know why I have it? Because I'm listening to the football game. (laughs) No, that's not true. I'm not. The notes from my sermon are being read aloud to me in my ear from my little Microsoft Surface computer. Y'all got to think that's kind of cool, right? So, it can be tough sometimes. But living as a blind person in America in 2023 is a manageable task. But in the days of Jesus, being born blind was one of the worst fates that could befall a man. Blind people had no technology to help them. They couldn't be productive members in their society. No laws had been passed to make sure that people who were blind were educated. For a blind person in Palestine in the first century, the only career choice ahead of you would be a life of begging. Well, the horrible sadness of the beggar's life is what caught the attention of Jesus' disciples as they walked by the blind man one day. You can imagine it, right? There, look at the guy. It stinks to see somebody suffering, right? It stinks to see somebody who looks like they've had a raw deal given to them out of life. And eventually, if you look at the situation long enough, you start wondering why. You ever do that? Why'd this happen? Why must people suffer like this? And those wonderings led the disciples to ask Jesus a pretty interesting question. The disciples asked Jesus, whose fault is it that this dude was born blind? His blindness either needs to be, what, the result is somebody's sin, obviously. So the disciples come up with what they would consider to be the two most logical alternatives. Was it the man or his parents who sinned, causing him to be born blind? I will tell you, it's always the parents. Mom's like, that's not fair. So, <laughs> no. Now, by the, does it feel to you like the disciples are asking a weird question when they say, whose fault is this? Does that sound strange to you? Have you ever watched the news after a tragedy? All right, I'm, I'm a little bit old. I'll admit it. I lived in Asia in 2004. Do you guys remember that long ago? There was an earthquake in the Indian Ocean and a tsunami swept India 
in Thailand, especially the island of Phuket. And 230,000 people in Asia died in that tragedy. You guys remember this? Yes. You know what I heard on the news for the next weeks? Why? You know what I heard Christians pontificating on, whether it's on podcasts or whatever the heck they were doing back in 2004, writing on their blogs? Tons of people were telling the world why God did it. And they gave one of two answers. They either said, well, this happened because God really isn't in control of earthquakes and oceans, so he couldn't stop it. Or they said, well, we know this happened because God was judging the people who died. You ever hear people say stuff like that? Every time a tragedy strikes, it happens, folks. But both of those answers are inadequate, aren't they? If you say God is not able to control nature, you've denied God's sovereignty over creation. The Bible's not going to let you do that faithfully. On the other hand, if you say that wave was the act of judgment of God, God judged that particular people. It was Sunday and they were on the beach and they shouldn't have been, so God squashed them. Which, by the way, I heard said, you th- if you say that, you're actually acting like you can see directly into the reasoning of God for why God does what he does or allows what he allows. Do you ever read Job? You can't do that, folks. None of us should dare assume that we can read the reasoning of God that simply. But regardless of those shortfalls, you got to admit that it is tempting for people to try to figure out why God lets certain things happen. But look at verse 3. Jesus gives the answer to the disciples' question, and it's not either of the two options that they gave him. Jesus answered, it's not that this man sinned, or his parents, make you feel better, Mom, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Neither the man nor his parents are directly to blame for his blindness. Instead, something much grander is behind this man's suffering. As strange as it might seem for you and me to believe, the reason this man was born blind was in order that the works of God would be displayed in his life. The man's suffering was for the purpose of glorifying God. Is that offensive? Yeah. If you believe that human happiness is the highest good, it's offensive. It's offensive if you believe that nothing is more important than our comfort and our ease. But if you believe that God is our creator and has the right to do with us as he pleases, and if you believe that the glory of God is the ultimate good, And if you believe that there's far more to our existence than this short life, then you have to conclude that it's okay and even good that the Lord would allow this to happen. God is our creator. He created all things. 
Therefore, all things that exist do so for God's pleasure. And God created people, all people, in His image for His glory. And if it's true that God created us, and if it's true that God has the right of ownership over us, and it's also true that God created us for the purpose of displaying His glory, then there's nothing wrong whatsoever with God allowing even our tremendous suffering if that suffering will display God's glory. All of our lives are for the glory of God. Your strengths and your weaknesses exist for God's glory. Your happy moments, happy moments, your greatest tragedies exist for the glory of God. Your greatest joys and your deepest sufferings are all testimonies in one way or another to the glory of God. My inability to see your faces in this room is to the glory of God. You know what this teaching makes you? It makes you a canvas. You are a canvas that God has created in order to display the beautiful art of his glory. Sometimes the colors that he uses to create that art are dark and painful. Sometimes the colors that he uses are bright and lovely and happy. But in either case, they're painted on your life in order that you will, when all is said and done, truly display for the world to see the glory of God, who is the divine artist. Now, before you let that thought feel negative, because it feels negative, oh, I got to deal with all the hard things. Realize, since God created you for the purpose of displaying his glory, the thing that will give you True soul fulfillment is when you do what God made you to do. When you display the glory of God, you'll have the joy that your creator intended for you. Joy even in the middle of hardship. Nothing can fill a human soul. Nothing can fill your soul up other than the joy of doing what you were created to do, giving glory to the one who made you for that purpose. So what we must do after thinking about the words of Jesus in verse 3 is change how we think. The Bible does that to you, right? Makes you rethink the world. We must think of ourselves as the canvas onto which God paints. We exist for his purposes. We exist for his glory. We must not ever allow ourselves to think that we are of the utmost importance. God is of the utmost importance. His glory is of the utmost importance. And if you can't stomach that, then you are at odds with God and God's purposes. Let me urge you, fight to change that way of thinking. Because you'll never, you're never going to out-wrestle God, you might as well do what his purpose is. And your life 
is a canvas to display the glory of God. So understand that your purpose for existing is the glory of God. And once you see what your purpose is, then we get to point number two. If you're writing points down, here's two. Glorify God in the time you've been given. Glorify God in the time that you have been given. Look at four and five. Jesus said, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. So Jesus continues talking to the disciples. The man's blindness is for the purpose of the glory of God. All of our lives are for the purpose of displaying the glory of God. So Jesus concludes that we need to do works that display the glory of God as long as we can. And Jesus talks here about working while it's day. Night's coming. That's probably a reference to the fact that sometime in the near future, I would say maybe in the next six months, Jesus is going to be killed as a sacrifice for our sins in John's gospel. And after that time, he's going to rise from the grave. But even when Jesus comes back from the dead, he's not going to minister on earth in the same way as he is here. Because 40 days after Jesus' resurrection, he returns to heaven alive to be with his Father to prepare our place for eternity. So Jesus had a limited earthly amount of time to do the kind of work he was about to do. And before Jesus did the miracle that we're going to look at next, Jesus reminded the disciples he's the light of the world. If anybody's really going to see, they're going to see because of Jesus. Now, real quick, what can we learn from this? If our Lord made it plain that his time on earth was limited during his first coming, and that he should work to accomplish the works of God while his time remained, how much more should we recognize the same thing? Your time on this earth is limited. Your opportunities during this life are limited. You're only going to live this life one time. You got that, right? So let me ask you real quick, how long are you going to live? Yeah, oh. But guess what? Once you die, or Jesus comes back, Once that happens, your ministry on earth is over. You get that, right? If you're a believer, heaven and glory await, not because you did the works of God, but because of Jesus. But if you're a believer, right now is the only time you have to do certain things. Right? Right now is the only time you're ever going to have to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with the lost. You can't do that in heaven. Right now is the only time you're ever going to have to care for the hurting, the needy, the poor, and the hungry in the name of Jesus. Right now is the only time you're ever going to have to to let your voice be heard and, and fight for the glory of God as you try to protect the lives of the unborn. Right now is the only time you're ever going to have to go through suffering in such a way that those who see you suffer glorify God. Listen to me, you will get only one chance to die in such a way that should people see it, 
They'll say there was something glorious about how God took you home. Right now is the time. Glorify God in the time you've been given. How do you start glorifying God with your, your life? Point number three, believe Jesus. Believe Jesus. This finds its way into most of our John sermons because that's what John's about. Look at verses six and seven. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. So Jesus makes a couple little mud packs for the man's eyes, slaps them on there, and tells the guy, go wash that off. Which would be cruel, by the way, if Jesus didn't know it was going to work. But the man heard Jesus. He obeyed Jesus' command. Even though it was a weird command, even though it had to feel strange, he obeyed Jesus and his life was forever changed because of it. The blind man was healed. How did Jesus do it? Do you ever think about that? How did Jesus, with some mud, fix a dude's eyes? My guess is Jesus did it the very same way that he fashioned dirt into a man and made him come to life. Right? Genesis 2, 7 says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. You might say, hey, wait a minute. That's God creating Adam. It's not Jesus, right? John 1, verses 1 to 3 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. Jesus made everything that was made. That includes humanity. So yes, in fact, Jesus is the Lord God who fashioned a man from the dust of the earth. And that same Jesus is the same Lord God here who does the impossible, healing eyes that had never worked by putting dirt and spit on them. Praise Jesus for that kind of power and that kind of mercy. But I think we can learn something from the man, too. Sometimes in narratives, you can learn from the right things people do. He was healed by the power of God. It's all about God. Don't take anything away from God in that. But do you notice he was healed when he believed Jesus enough to follow Jesus' instructions? He went to wash as he was commanded. The blind man trusted Jesus enough to allow Jesus to change his life. His life was changed. What about you? Do you trust Jesus enough to surrender to him? Just so you know, you reformed nerds, don't worry so much. I believe in the sovereignty of God. But our experience is us and Jesus, right? Do you trust Jesus enough to surrender to Jesus? Do you trust Jesus enough to rely on Jesus and Jesus alone for your soul's eternity? Jesus is the very God who made you. You have sinned and rebelled against Jesus. He offers you the opportunity to turn away from your rebellion 
and to serve him forever as a canvas upon which he will display his glory. You've got to wonder, what should I do? Believe that Jesus died as payment for your sins. Believe that Jesus rose from the grave. He proved that you can live with God forever. Turn away from sin. Yield your life to Jesus. Do not be confused here. I'm not suggesting that you clean yourself up so God will save you. Don't let yourself ever think that the way you get saved is by cleaning up and then coming to Jesus. It doesn't work. What I'm saying is that you let go. You stop fighting. You stop clinging to the mastery of your own life and surrender in faith to the Savior. Then once you've been forgiven by Jesus, you're going to stop living like your own boss. You'll stop living only for the pleasures of this world. You'll start living to do what you were created for. You will live to display the glory of God. You will live to let the world know about who God is and what he's like. You'll live to give God all the honor and all the praise that you can. And I pray that you'll be changed by Jesus today. Believe in Jesus. Obey Jesus. Allow Jesus to change your life. So you can display the glory of God. And if you live to display God's glory, it's going to get the attention of other people. How do you deal with that? Fourth point, last point. Tell others. Point number four, tell others. Side note, it kind of feels good to get back to, my, to the normal style of preaching here with the points and everything. I loved the covenant series, but this feels good. Look at John 9, 8 to 12. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he's like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how are your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. Y'all, I love verses 8 and 9. If, if, if things in the Bible don't make you grin from time to time, you're not reading it right. People who knew the blind man, his neighbors for crying out loud, they see him walking around, and they get into an argument with him and with each other about, is he he? <laughs> is this the same guy? Uh, no, no, that can't be him. Yeah, it is. No, it's not. He looks like him. Oh, that's not the same dude. Yes, he is. No, he isn't. And then the guy himself, the formerly blind guy, jumps in and goes, no, it's me. <laughs> and they're like, no. Now, does that sound strange to you? I want you to imagine that you're here at the Y and you're pulling out from the parking lot and a pretty blue car goes by and I'm driving and I wave at you. <laughs> What's up, Dennis? Don't you think that would make you question whether or not it was really me you saw driving? Make you question driving? 
Once the people believe that the guy's the guide, though, they ask him, how'd you get healed? And how simple is this account, right? Formerly blind man tells his story. He doesn't make it complicated. He just lets them know, this is who I was. This is what Jesus did. This is how I'm different now. Then, as the section wraps up, they ask him, where is Jesus? Which is a stupid question. He has no idea what Jesus looks like. He's never seen Jesus. Jesus did not go with him to the pool where he washed and regained his sight. He cannot point them to the physical Jesus. All he can do is tell them his story and tell the truth about Jesus and hope they'll believe him. I want you guys to know, letting me in on a little secret, you guys know that we have now four elders in the church, me and three other dudes. I love my elders, but they're not that smart all the time. I can't tell you how many times I've been in an elder meeting and somebody new will have come to the church. And I'll be like, oh yeah, by the way, after service, I talk with John. And one of my brilliant God-fearing servants who open the word and teach you people will say, was he the guy in the red shirt? And I will say, I don't know. <laughs> I will look at Ben and I'll say, I don't know, Margo. And there's nothing I can do. But they keep asking. That's what happened right here. But the man just told his story. Now, if you're a Christian, you're in much the same position as the blind man who was healed. You want to read your story? Turn to Ephesians 2 real fast. We'll be done. Ephesians 2. What did I tell you he did? He told them who he was, what Jesus did, how, how things are different now. Ephesians 2. I'm just going to read 1 to 7. Really, all the way through 10 would work, but we'll just do this here. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You know what that is? That, Christians, is who you were. If, that, if you don't realize that's who you were, you may not be saved. That's who we were. Sinful under the wrath of God. But God. Praise God for this part, right? What did God do? But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. If you're a Christian, you used to be dead in your sins, totally unable to respond to God, totally unable to do anything that would please God. You, all of us, were by nature children of God's wrath, but God, out of God's great love, made us alive together with Christ. God changed us. He gave us a new home. He gave us a citizenship in heaven. He did this in order that he might display the glory of his mercy and kindness in us for eternity. That is the story of every person, every Christian who's ever lived. 
you want to do is tell your story to others. And by doing so, show them not how great you are, but how great is the mercy of your glorious God. You tell them, I was a sinner. Jesus died for me. Jesus saved me. Jesus made me alive. Jesus made me new. If you don't know Jesus and you're hearing my voice somehow, I invite you, let go of sin and self, trust in Jesus. Only Jesus could have given sight to the man born blind. Only Jesus can save your soul from the judgment that all of us deserve. Believe in Jesus. Run to Jesus. Be changed by Jesus. Be saved. And believers... Understand, your very life is a canvas for the display of the glory of God. Glorify the artist, not the canvas. When you suffer, know that you have the opportunity to glorify the Lord in how you suffer. When you have joy, know that that is for the glory of God. In every area, as you have opportunity, in the few years that you live, live to the glory of God. Love him, worship him, Tell others about him. Find joy in being God's work of art. Let's pray together, friends. God, this is good. And we are grateful. I pray, Lord, that you will help us as the people of God to be works of art. Help us realize that we live for your glory. Help us use the time you've given us to live for your glory. Help us believe Jesus and know that We're not saved because we do good things. We do good things because you've saved us. Help us tell others and see them come to know you too. God, make us faithful. Help us not to look at every tragedy in our own lives as something that you have to explain to us. Help us know that our lives are for your glory. And as you get the glory by working through weak vessels, even ones that can't do all the things they wish they could, Be magnified, God, I pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen.